uh, we are starting this new series and, and we're trying to figure out what we're doing as a church because we're at this inflection point where so much has changed and it feels like we're emerging from one very defined and distinct chapter of our life together and we're about to go into this whole new thing. And, and every time you do that, there's an, a real opportunity to do something different and new and, and challenging and scary. We're about to do a lot of that. And so I want to talk a little bit, of, little bit about the story's next chapter um, today in the next two weeks. Uh, first, I want to say a special happy birthday to my wife and co-pastor Giovanna, who is, uh, who, how old? Uh, 39, I think. 39. Uh, so, right? Is that right? Okay. Pastor Gio, happy birthday. And uh, we love you. All right. Um, uh, you know, they say the whole, like, uh, best laid plans kind of thing, you know. Um, uh, sometimes it just doesn't work out like you think it would, right? Um, and and I, I look at this season that we've been going through together, and, and nothing works out like it's supposed to anymore. You ever feel that way? Do any of you remember what it feels like to not be stressed out and anxious? You young and you don't even know there used to be a time not that long ago, not like the 90s. Like my kids are always like, you mean the 90s? Like it's a century ago or something. <laughs> no, I mean like a few years ago. It wasn't the norm to always be on edge, but now we are, all of us mostly uh, on edge most of the time. And uh, so, you know, I, I remember a few months back, I thought we were finally turning a corner before the whole Delta thing and the resurgence and all of that. And, and gosh, here we are again, right? Um, where we're trying to figure out what steps to take to, to make sure everybody's safe and welcome and all of that. But a few months ago, I told everybody on our staff to circle August 15th today as the date. Like in my mind, it was gonna be some big glorious like return to the days of old. Everyone comes back to church and, and uh, you know, gets back to normal. And that's when the pandemic is behind us. You know, we've been waiting to flatten this curve for 72 weeks now. They said it would be two, and here we are. And I thought, surely by August 15th. And, and you know, now the numbers show we're, we're not much better off than we ever have been in this, in this pandemic. It's just the pandemic that refuses to quit. And so it's just one more thing in a long line of other things, though, right? Like, this is just like the new normal. I moved my family from Kansas City to Houston to, to start this new church that didn't exist, and we didn't know what it would be. But we moved seven years ago. And it feels like one big traumatic emergency after another for seven years. COVID's just the last thing. Before COVID, we had all the floods. Remember that? It's like it would flood. It would just, not even like just Harvey and, and Imelda and whatever, like even just a random shower would flood the whole city on tax day or something. And just Memorial Day, all these different floods that we had. Uh, all the trauma of moving to Houston and realizing part of what it means to live in a petrochemical city like this is that buildings just explode sometimes. <laughs> like random buildings in Pasadena just blow up. And then we have chemical clouds in the sky and everybody's cool with it. Everybody's like, that's, that's Houston, welcome. Like, that's what happens here. And the roaches fly and all these other crazy things happen. <laughs> when you live in Houston, it's like, what is this place? And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's just been one thing after another. And, 
And not only in Houston, but everywhere. Everywhere is going through just constant cycles of trauma. And some of it's real, actual traumatic things. Some of it's just the media saying it's a traumatic thing. And like, they're just trying to keep us anxious because anxious people watch the news and, and we're falling for it. And we're always anxious. And the more anxious we get, the more divided we get because people are not anxious about the right things. And if they're not anxious like I am, then they're, they're public enemy number one. You know, and, and we're just turning on each other. It's making us hate each other more. And, and we've seen it in the world, in the, in the country, the, these political, uh, you know, election seasons we've had, never more controversial than the, than the last few. And, 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 you know, the George Floyd and, and his murder and the, the aftermath, and, and we, we've had all these controversies and, and Me Too movement and, and Black Lives Matter movement and all kinds of things that in some ways very much needed to happen in other ways have resulted in us being more divided and, and hateful toward each other than ever. And I look around and people are just, they're just like deer in the headlights. They're, they're just stuck, paralyzed with fear and rage. And I'm there too. I, the last year and a half have been extremely frustrating to me because I like feeling like I know what I'm doing and I have no idea what I'm doing up here. I'm really good at pretending, but I have no idea how to lead a large and growing organization of people through a pandemic that will never end. I have no idea. Every day I look in the mirror and my insufficiency just stares back at me. It's all I ever see, right? It's like, like many of you, I have this constant feeling of frustration going on. And, 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 you know, we've got all these changes that are coming to the story as well. And the changes, we're leaving St. Luke's, this campus, we're relocating this campus somewhere else. Do we know where? Anyone? I don't know. My fingernails will tell the story. I have no idea where we're going in four and a half months. We'll figure it out. God's got us. Okay, I keep saying that. So stay tuned. And we've got all these changes. And, and I say all of this and leaving a whole bunch of other stuff out. I just say all this to say, when I take stock of it all, I am confident that my faith is stronger having gone through everything we've gone through and continue to go through today. And had I had it easier, had my journey been more comfortable, I might have felt good about it at the time, but my faith would not be stronger for it. And this is one of the mysteries of the Bible. The more difficult it seems in the short term, the more glorious it is in the long term, the more adversity you face in life, the deeper your faith can grow. It's one of those things where where the Bible says suffering is a blessing, and once you suffer, you start to believe it because you, your roots grow deeper in times of great adversity. And we all want to be comfortable and have life easy, but do we really want that? And so all of this has us asking real questions, like if that's the case, and if our, our church, I don't know, I don't know, I almost said we've grown through COVID. I don't know if we've grown through COVID. I don't know how big our church is anymore. <laughs> I used to be able to tell you exactly our numbers every week. Butts in seats, dollars in the plate, you name the number, I could tell you. It's all a mystery now, okay? No one knows. I, we could be 50% bigger than we were before COVID or 50% smaller, and I would not be surprised, <laughs> okay? I think things are going okay, but none of us know for sure. And the, the, 
the question this all brings up is at, at an inflection point like this one, where all these changes are about to remake us into a new church in a new chapter of our life, what kind of church do we want to be? More importantly, what kind of church is God calling us to be? I can tell you more easily what kind of church I, I don't want to be because I get bored with church really easily. Anyone else? I get really bored with church. And the story has been going for six years now, and we're just reaching that point in our church life where we're at this fork in the road, and one of the paths before us, one of the two paths before us, is to become a plain old boring church with a pastor who, like, you know, writes books and and whatever, and a pastor who's like, squeezes himself into them jeans and like a pastor who denies that he's aging and sticks his hair up high. And like we, we could have that kind of a, we could, that's an option. And that would kill me. I think that would be the, the worst thing for the story to follow that path of uh, comfort, convenience, personality driven, a path. I think God has something else um, for us. So when we think about the story, I know we're not the same church we were when we when we started this pandemic in February 2020. We're definitely not the same church we were when we started worshiping in February of 2015. Just think about all the ways God has worked in us and changing us. So and one way we've changed is we've gotten bigger, right? So we started with 30 people. I think there's somewhere north of a thousand people that call the story home right now. Again, who knows, but I think that's more or less where we are. That's not the only way or even the most important way that we have grown. Story has also gotten younger on average. If you were here at the very, very beginning of the story's life in 2015, you know that the story began, more than half of our congregation at our first service had connections to other Methodist churches. And I don't mean this in any negative way, but Methodist churches tend to trend a little older than the average population, all right? So y'all still love me? Okay, okay, I'm just stating facts, facts here, okay? So that meant our congregation trended a little older, and we've had a lot of babies too. The story's had like this baby boom that, that brings that uh, average age down some. We've also become more racially and ethnically diverse, and this is very exciting to me. Not because I don't like white people. <laughs> I'm fine <laughs> with white people. But when the story began, we were probably 95% white people, and that would be fine if we were in Vermont. <sighs> but I think it's important for a church at least to try and reflect the city that it's in. And even more importantly, a church should reflect what the kingdom of God is like, what heaven will be like. So the closer we get to that, the more I rejoice and the more I celebrate. So now the story's community is somewhere between 70, I think, 70, 75% people who look like me and 25, 30% people who are Hispanic and Asian and African-American and, and other people of color. And I think that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. We've also become more geographically scattered and spread out. We used to be in one place all at the same time and that was kind of nice. And communication was a lot easier back then. There was a lot of comfort to taking a full room, one room full of people who were all in this together, but now we're all scattered out. And now we've got this move coming up, all right? So in light of all this change, 
a bunch of our leaders have been putting our heads and hearts together in discernment and prayer, trying to figure out uh, what's next, what our mission should be, how it should change over the next uh, few years. And this is a huge and exciting time for us. It's gonna have some massive ramifications for the lives God reaches through the ministries of the story. So the question we've been asking, the question I wanna put in front of you today is what if, what if nothing mattered more to us than skeptics and believers falling in love with God and with each other? What if nothing mattered more than skeptics and believers falling more in love with God and each other? All right, so I know this seems like just a regular old, of course, kind of question, but you need to understand that if this becomes the norm here, everything will change here because this suddenly will matter more than anything else we do. So if this is what matters the most, then what if the next question is, what if the story became less about the presentation of the thing? What if the story became less of a show, less polish, less flash, and more about prayer? What if we made it a point to teach you how to get on your knees and pray every day? What would change if that were the case? What if we became less about entertaining people who come to the show and more about engaging you in the ministry of God's kingdom? What if that became the priority for our next chapter in our life together? What if we prioritized relationships over religion? In other words, what if you meeting God and meeting other people with you on this journey with God What if that took precedence over you coming and filling a seat in a row on a Sunday morning? These are real and and foundational changes that we are proposing, that we're suggesting for the future. Some of you might not like this. This might not be the kind of church you thought you were signing up for when you signed up for the story. And I'm sorry if it comes as, as a shock to you that this is the way we're headed but I look forward to a time when at the story, we don't just look to sign people up as members. Instead, we're looking to send you out as missionaries to your homes, to the city. What if we saw you as pastors in training instead of just waiting for you to come here? You know, what if that mattered more than becoming a cool church? What if it mattered more than anything Pastor Eric or any other pastor had to say? So, We've been hammering out some of this stuff and, and this is important for our future. I, I know, and we got three weeks to do this, uh, these core values. We've got three of them I wanna explore. The first one today I wanna explore is our commitment to challenging comfort. We are committed in the season ahead to challenging comfort. Now, what does that mean? Clearly it's, a, it's confusing because we thought we go to church to be comfortable and that's our ex- expectation a lot of us have a consumeristic mentality when we go to church. I'm supposed to go to church and they cater to me. I'm supposed to go to church and be made to feel comfortable. And the customer's always right. So if I say it's too cold in here, it's too cold in here. Like that kind of a mentality is oftentimes how we, how we go about this. And, and I'm saying, and our leaders are saying, let's reject that. Let's rebuke that. Because the church isn't here to make members comfortable. The church is here to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Sometimes that means being hospitable. We don't want to be inhospitable. We're still going to serve coffee. We're still going to have air conditioning. We'll still have the basics. 
But again, if you consider us at a fork in the road, one of the paths we can take is taking it to the next level, wanting to please everyone who's here so that you'll keep coming back and not leave us for another church. God forbid that become our mission. If you need to leave us for another church, God bless you. We're one team here with other churches. You get that, right? And so that's not the worst thing in the world. The worst thing in the world would be prioritizing our comforts over the mission God put in front of us. And so when we, when we talk about this, we have to recognize the dangers of becoming a church that prioritizes comfort. And it happens all the time. And it happens for some good reasons. Y'all wanna know why it happens? Can I give you some inside perspective as a pastor? Most of the complaints pastors and staff of churches get have nothing to do with theology or doctrine or Bible stuff. It has to do with customer service issues. Coffee's too hot. Air conditioning's too cold. Parking's too hard. Chairs are too hard. (laughs) Some of y'all are like, he's talking about me right now. Lights are too bright. His pants are too tight. Uh, Music's too loud. Sermon's too long. Preacher's too handsome. I can't focus on the sermon. I'm just kidding. The last one's a joke. The rest of them are real. Okay. And it's easy to get to a point of wanting to make budget so we make the people who give to the budget happy. It's it's an easy temptation to fall prey to. But what if we challenge comfort, all right? I think, I think some of us are not even aware how much we've become addicted to comfort and how soft it's made us. The reason why this is important is because comfort is kryptonite to faith. Comfort lulls us into complacency without us even knowing it. That's why Jesus and the rest of the Bible writers, really, but Jesus especially, is always like, make yourself uncomfortable. Take up a cross, Suffer with me, die with me, be willing to give away your life for me. And anybody who wants to hold on to his life or his stuff in his life will never know real comfort or real joy or real abundance. Paul put it this way in, in 2 Corinthians 1.15, or sorry, 1.5. He said, as we share abundantly in the suffering of Christ, so also our comfort abounds in Christ. So if we are ever gonna know what real comfort even is, we have to first be willing to endure the suffering, the kind of suffering Christ endured. It's a tall order. We like comfort. I love comfort. I'm, y'all know I'm preaching to me, right? Most of the time up here. I love comfort and convenience. Are you kidding me? But it's not the way of the cross. It's not the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, I didn't go to my religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. (laughs) I'm not a port guy myself, but I get what he's saying. A cab, maybe. You know, I don't know. But if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Jesus is always talking about this, and, uh, and not least of which in his probably most famous story. It's right up there with the prodigal son, but the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, and this is one that atheists, agnostics, everybody knows about the Good Samaritan. Everybody likes Jesus uh, telling this story. And this is found in uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And that's, I'm going to read this for us today. In Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37, Jesus is, is talking about how important it is to allow yourself to be inconvenienced by someone in need. 
If you've ever faced someone in need and thought, I'm too busy, someone else can do it, I got too much going on, you're in good company, but this story is for us, okay? Luke 10, verse 25 to 37. Here, here we go. On one occasion, an expert in the law, so this is a religious lawyer, somebody who knew the Bible cover to cover in Jesus' day, stood up to test Jesus. It's a bad idea, all right? So uh, if you get to heaven and ever have an inclination, you should test Jesus. Um, I don't recommend it. It doesn't work out well, as we'll see. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you think he really didn't know? Do you think he thought he didn't know? Nah. He was pretty sure he had it figured out. He was testing Jesus, right? What must, what do you think I should do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus said, what's the Bible say? What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Can you hear the sanctimoniousness as he's saying this to Jesus? And love your neighbor as yourself. And then everybody pats him on the back. Even Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Do you think he thought he didn't know who his neighbors were? No. Again, he's just testing Jesus. Who do you think my neighbors are? Jesus is trying to catch him. And in reply to that, Jesus told this story. A man, we can assume this was a Jewish man. Jesus was a Jew and all his followers were Jewish. His listeners in this story were Jewish. And so a Jewish man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Hmm. Okay, why? Would a man of God not stop and take care of this person in need? I mean, you might have your own ideas. I'm, I'm speaking as a religious professional myself. And I know that I'm busy a lot of the time and I like to think that people need me and are counting on me and I've got a family to take care of and kids to feed and there's plenty of reasons to not stop and not just for religious professionals or priests or pastors either. You've always got a reason not to stop. And Jesus is just lifting up the priests as one example, right? So he's crossing to the other side of the street because he's got stuff to do and people to see. He might even have priestly work to do, so he can't be bothered with this broken man on the road. Okay, then he continues. So to a Levite, another highfalutin religious guy, right, Levite came uh, to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a, uh, So he did the same thing as the priest. But a Samaritan, people probably know this by now, Samaritans and Jews did not love each other very much. The Jews often called Samaritans by certain slurs like half-breeds or scum or, you know, sellouts because there was history there. Like centuries ago, some Jewish folks during the divided kingdom era, they didn't come back to the true Israel. Instead, they stayed in Samaria and they interbred and intermarried with the Assyrians. And then they mixed in the Assyrian religion and gods with, with the Jewish God. And they called themselves the true Israel. It was messy. There was no reason to believe that a Samaritan could be good at all. 
Jesus introduces the Samaritan here. As he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. This is all expensive stuff that he's doing, okay? He's, he's going to his own expense here. Then he put the man on his own donkey. Pay attention, this is gonna matter in a second. Put it on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii. That's two days wages. This is expensive work here. He's giving out of his own pocket to this stranger who, by the way, probably hates his guts. This is a Jewish man who probably would never stop for a broken Samaritan man to mend his wound, much less go to such expense. But he does it anyway, all right? Says to the innkeeper, look after him. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you might have. And then Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Okay, so wait just a second. What was the question the lawyer asked Jesus? The last question? And who is my neighbor? And what did Jesus tell him? Did Jesus tell him who his neighbor is? Not exactly. In a manner of speaking, he did, but he really turned the question back around on him, didn't he? He asked the, the man, I don't know, you tell me. Who were you taking care of? Who were you stopping for? Who were you spending your money, your time, your heart, your safety on? To whom are you a neighbor? Is the question Jesus asked the lawyer, right? This is just what Jesus does. And Jesus is always sneaking up on us like this. And even the fact that you think you know this story so well, you probably checked out when I was reading it, is proof enough that Jesus is sneaky because most of us don't know that Jesus based this story on an Old Testament story that no one knows even exists because it's in a book very few people have ever read, Second Chronicles. How many of you know Second Chronicles by heart? Second Chronicles 28, who's the lead character? Okay, Second Chronicles 28 tells a story that happened 800 years before Jesus walked the earth when those divided kingdoms, the Northern and Southern kingdoms went to war with each other. And the Northern kingdom of Samaria had its way with the Southern kingdom of Judea because the Judean king was evil and he, uh, he was being punished by God, frankly. And so when, when, the, when the Northern kingdom conquered the Southern, their troops were plundering and pillaging and taking what they wanted. They were taking slaves and taking wives and all kinds of other plunder and spoils of war. And you have to understand the mindset of men. I mean, just people really, not just men, but whenever you are given victory in this life, it is often equated with righteousness. You think you won because God was on your side. It's human nature to think that. We won because we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. And that's the mentality these guys had when they were pillaging and plundering. But there was a prophet, everyone's favorite Old Testament prophet named Oded. Raise your hand if you've never heard of Oded in your life. Okay, so, okay. There was an Old Testament prophet named Oded. And I want you to, I want you to pay attention to this reading because you're gonna see how Jesus based the Good Samaritan story on this ancient event in history. Okay, so 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses nine through 11 but a prophet of the Lord named Obed was, Oded was there. And he went out to meet the army when it returned to Samaria, victorious, right? 
And he said to them, because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand, but you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven. So now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves. But aren't you also guilty of sins against the Lord your God? So what's he saying? You think you're righteous and that's why you won the war. No, you're a sinner just like anyone. Man, how many of us need to hear that? We don't want to, right? We like to think of people who don't think like us being sinners. How easy does that get when you get really stressed and anxious like we've been in the last year and a half? To think that people who think about things differently than we do and do things differently than we do, people who do things we might call idiotic or or outrageous, that they're the bad guys, they're the enemy, and we're the good guys. We're on the right side. Boy, how easy does that get? And Oded would tell us the same thing. No, 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 you're not any better than these people that you're hating on. You're sinners too. And that's what Oded said to these soldiers. And he said, but aren't you guilty of sins in the Lord your God? Now listen to me, send back your fellow Israelites. You've taken as prisoners for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. Skipping ahead to verse 14 says, so the soldiers gave up the prisoners and the plunder in the presence of the officials and all the assembly. The men designated by name took the prisoners and from the plunder they clothed, listen, what did they do? They clothed the naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals, put shoes on their feet. They gave them food and drink and they gave them a healing balm. All those who were weak, they put on donkeys. Do you remember what the Samaritan did? For the broken man, put him on his own donkey. And at their own expense, they sent these men home. They took them back to their fellow Israelites at Jericho, the city of Palms, and returned to Samaria. So if you were a first century Jew, especially a teacher of the law, you knew that story by heart. You had to memorize huge swaths of the Old Testament. And as Jesus told the story, you would have recognized the familiar pattern of what the Samaritan did for the broken Jew on the road and and what the uh, Israelites in, in ancient days did for their brothers that they had taken as slaves and prisoners. You also probably would have noticed that the same three places, geographical places that are mentioned in 2 Chronicles 28 are also mentioned in the story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan, Jerusalem, Jericho, Samaria. You would have picked up on these same uh, patterns and trends. Jesus is sending a very clear message here. Sometimes we think of Jesus as some kind of a biblical revolutionary, like the Bible said one thing until Jesus came along, and then it said this whole different, better thing. Old Testament God, old, crusty, angry, vengeful, wrathful, jealous. New Testament Jesus, just this cool hippie you want to hang with on the weekends. You know, it's like not quite that simple. Because Jesus is saying here, when he says that indeed, you should not only know the mercy of God, you should show the mercy of God. Not only should you experience the agape love of God for yourself, but you should be willing to lay your own heart and life and money on the line to show that same agape love to someone else. He's like, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. I'm not giving you anything you haven't already heard. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 28. It's been there all along. This is who we've always supposed to have been. And yet when life takes over and we get busy and we have excuses, we've got families to take care of, we've got kids to feed, we've got jobs to do, we've got money to make, we can cloud our judgment with all kinds of excuses. But Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms, agape is what all of this has always been about. Agape love. And this is not sentimental love. 
It's not touchy-feely love. It's not warm, fuzzy, puppy love. Agape love hurts. Agape love is always uncomfortable to give. Agape love isn't given because you feel like giving it. Agape love is given because you have received it already from God. Agape love is always a sacrifice. It always comes with no small measure of suffering. Agape love means making yourself uncomfortable by putting aside your own pride and prejudice and preferences to love people that you'd rather not, quite frankly, because they smell different or because they are dangerous or because they are, you know, Republicans or because they're Democrats or because they're whatever, anti-vaxxers, double maskers, whatever side you're on, it means loving the other side. That's agape love. And that should be a reminder to all of us, no matter where we spend our Sunday mornings, how far we have to go to become the people God has called us to be and the church God has called us to be, all right? Because we've realized, just like in 2 Chronicles 28, just like in the Good Samaritan story, that we are sinners in need of mercy, all right? I look around, man, at this world, and, and I, I know what I've gone through and how much I've struggled, but, you know, I've got the agape of God in my life. And whenever it's gotten really bad, I've been able to worship or get a word from a brother or sister in Christ or go to the Bible, and, and I've been renewed by seeing everybody at church and just worshiping together. And, and I've got this foundation that I, that I stand on. It's like a branch I can grab before I hit the ground, you know? But I look at a world full of people who don't have that. Is it no wonder to us like, why everyone's losing their ever-loving minds and, and saying all kinds of hateful things to each other and about each other? Why this world is being torn apart? Why our culture is being torn apart down the middle across political lines? Is it no wonder why when we're right and our enemies are wrong, we take some kind of pride, like, gosh, man, I, I'll tell you what, this whole like mask and vaccine thing is really showing us who we really are. And some of y'all are hoping I'm about to say something very specific that fits your narrative. And I, I'm probably not. Look, I'm, first of all, disclaimer, so nobody throws anything at me. I'm vaccinated. If you're healthy and, and all's good there, like I encourage you to do that. But listen, even if you are, and you think everyone should be, and you're of a mind, the government should be like shooting this into baby's arms the minute they're born, like everybody, like if that's where you are, and then someone who's not along the same lines as you, they're thinking differently, and they get sick, and all you can do is cheer because you were right and they were wrong, and they had it coming, should we even let them in the hospital? They didn't want to get the, the vaccine, like, are you hearing yourselves? Are we hearing ourselves and how hateful we become whenever we let fear and anxiety set in? And it works on the other side too. You see it all the time, this, this, uh, this polarization. And that's what happens whenever you're looking for a win for yourself, whenever you're looking for your own comfort zone instead of loving with the agape love of God. But where? Where can people find that? In their political tribe? Nah. nah cancel cultures run so rampant on both ends of the polarization spectrum that you mess up, you're gone. 
Love is very conditional in that world. Where are they going to find and learn about and discover and experience the agape love of God? In therapy or counseling, those things are good. Mental health care is good, but it's like sometimes putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound that needs stitches. Like it's only going to get you so far. Where will people discover the agape love of God if not through a church that gets it? Through a church that has decided to make itself uncomfortable. A church that has insisted on not just being a bunch of old Christians that all think and act and vote the same way every cycle of elections. Like, we must do something different as we stand at this fork in the road. So I will ask you again, what if nothing mattered more than skeptics and believers falling more in love with God and one another every day? What if we made ourselves so uncomfortable until everybody, young and old and liberal and conservative and male and female and black, white and brown and straight and LGBT and double maskers and anti-vaxxers. What if everybody could experience the agape love of God here? What if that's the kind of church God's called us to be? And what if that's the kind of person God's calling you to be right now? There will always be a reason not to stop for someone in need. They'll always look different than you, vote different than you, smell different than you, live different than you. But if you want to know the eternal and abundant life that Christ came to give you, you won't find it in circling the wagons and insisting on your own comfort and convenience. You'll only find it in allowing yourself to be made uncomfortable and allowing yourself to be inconvenienced. You'll only find it by stopping and looking after someone in need. I was thinking about, as I was reflecting on the last six years at the story, some of the greatest memories that I have, you know, and I'm not really one to like go back and, I don't know, I, I, I tend to forget a lot of great things that that's happened just because I want to move on to more great things. Some of the stuff that stands out are the times when somebody's life was changed forever because somebody stopped you get what I'm saying? Like sometimes we're looking for the big watershed moments. Like let's all go to Africa and build a church. Nobody knows how to build anything here. You're a bunch of oil and gas people. I'm a pastor. It's like, what are we going to build? Like we, we, we should probably start at home by just giving our hearts over more to the agape love of God. If we would just stop as we're rushing around from one thing to another, excusing ourselves from one situation and another, stop and say hello to someone who might need a friend. Gosh, I was talking uh, with this guy the other day, one of my best friends, and, and he was talking about this other guy in the church who told him, man, I know you're one of the busiest people that I know, but that one time, that one time when I had no one to reach out to, I had no one there for me, that one time you stopped what you were doing and you came and took care of me. And there was a, a woman in the church who was about ready to leave her husband. And, and I don't know, she was at one of those inflection points, right? If she take this path, I don't know that what her life would even look like today. If she took her kids and left her husband, he had messed up in some awful ways. But she called the church that day and Gio and I just happened to be here. And, and we dropped what we were doing that day. And this is not to sing our praises. We mess up a lot, but that day we did not. All right. So we, we dropped what we were doing. And, and instead of going about our routine and getting to all of our meetings and our, our, 
you know, kids and all that, that, you know, need us all the time, just like anybody else. We adjusted on the fly and we were there for her. And she still to this day, three years later says, that's the day my life changed. And do you know what an impact one person can make whenever their heart is full of the agape love of God? Far greater impact. God can use that person to bring revival to the land. Do you understand that one heart full of the agape love of God has the power to revolutionize this world in ways that a little bit of therapy and counseling or God knows politics will never do? We're not here to be churchy or proud or tribal or religious. We're here very simply to love our enemies and our neighbors the way Jesus first loved us. And not because we're so holier than thou. We're not that good. Just because when we were enemies of God through our sins, that's the moment Jesus came and gave himself up for us. What if we built a church around these principles? And what if five years from now, no one was coming to the story to hear what one pastor or any particular person has to say? What if no one came to the story to see a show? What if no one came expecting to be made comfortable? What if we all came to hear what Jesus had to say about how we're called to love and who we're called to love today? There is no limit to what God can do with a church like this if we made this our mission. Would y'all pray with me? God, give us courage and faith for the season ahead. We have a lot of unanswered questions here, and uh, none of us really know what we're doing. We need you to be our lead pastor, Father. Forgive us for the ways we've tried to control everything and, and keep everything under our thumbs and and create an institution that is about ritual and religion instead of just letting your spirit run roughshod over our hearts, showing us, teaching us how to love sacrificially. Lord, make us willing, help us to be willing to suffer, even if it's temporary, to hurt a little bit or to be inconvenienced by the needs of those around us. We know that it is when we stop to feed hungry mouths or to mend open wounds or to help someone in need, that that's where we meet you the most. Show us the way, Father. Show us, Jesus, and we will follow you. We pray together in your holy name. Amen.